Area 941 podcast are produced and distributed by Community Powered 94.1 KPFA Radio. Please help support Area 941 at kpfa.org. This is the Area 941 Radio Walensky Podcast. I'm your host, Richard Walensky. We're talking about books, about theater, about film, and sometimes about politics. Most of these interviews were originally conducted for KPFA's Bookwaves program and its predecessor, Probabilities. This interview comes from the Probabilities Archive and was recorded the weekend of October 15th to 16th, 1978, at the Octacon Science Fiction Convention in Santa Rosa, California. The three interviewers were science fiction writer Richard A. Lupoff, bookseller Lawrence Davidson, and myself. Frederick Pohl, who died at the age of 93 in September 2013, did almost everything in the world of science fiction, as a writer, an agent, and a magazine and book editor. He grew up in Brooklyn, began writing at an early age, and in his 20s was a member of a leftist group of science fiction writers known as the Futurians. In 1937, in order to make money, Fred Pohl became an agent and two years later a pulp magazine editor himself, often buying his own stories along with collaborations with various other writers, all under pseudonyms. In the 1960s, he became editor of Galaxy Magazine and its sister publication, Worlds of If and in the 70s became the science fiction editor at Bantam Books, which he left shortly before this interview. His career took a different turn in the 1970s, as he emerged as one of science fiction's preeminent novelists with Man Plus in 1976 and Gateway in 1977. In 1978, on the heels of novelist and short story writer Damon Knight's memoir, The Futurians, he came out with his own memoir, The Way the Future Was. And that was where his career stood when the three of us interviewed him at the legendary Octacon in Santa Rosa that October 14th, 15th, 1978. We were all still new at interviewing, particularly in placement of the microphones. A couple of notes. Judy Lynn Del Rey was the editor of Ballantine Books' science fiction and fantasy line who later received her own imprint, Delray Books, from the early 1970s until her death in 1986. John W. Campbell was the editor of Astounding Stories, later Analog, from 1937 into the 70s. Judy Merrill was a science fiction writer best known as the editor of the Best of the Year science fiction short story anthologies from 1956 to 1968. Stanton Koblenz was a leading science fiction writer of the 20s and 30s who drifted into obscurity after the rise of writers like Asimov and Heinlein. John Michel was a key member of the Futurians who never fulfilled his promise. Horace Gold was the first editor of Galaxy, the magazine that brought literary style into science fiction, and Fred Pohl replaced him. Other names mentioned in the interview are Anthony Boucher and F. Francis McComas, the first editors of the magazine of fantasy and science fiction. What motivated you to write an autobiography? 
motivated me to write my autobiography was that Judy Lynn Del Rey asked me to write my autobiography. I don't think I would have had the chutzpah to do it on my own, but once given the opportunity, I thought it was the jazziest idea I'd heard in a long time. Did Damon Wright's book, The Futurians, influence you in, in what not to write about? When I was writing The Way the Future Was, it was just as Damon was writing The Futurians, and I'd seen, uh, I guess, part of the manuscript, and I regarded it as my chance for equal time. But I don't really think what's in the book is responsive to anything Damon said. Everything Damon said in the book, as far as in his book, as far as I could tell, was pretty near right. It just seemed to leave out the glue that bound the Futurians together, which was uh, a little more elevated and amiable than anything described in his book. It seems to me that the Knight book, uh, he sort of sees himself as one of the original members, whereas you say in your book that he came in much after and almost to a point where you had left. That's right. By the time Damon Knight arrived in the Futurians, I had more or less ceased to be active in it. And the organization was sort of withering away. Or maybe it just seemed so to me because I was no longer very active. But when it began, it was a pretty cohesive group that involved 20 or 30 people. Most of the people got together very, fairly frequently. By the early 1940s, when Damon moved from Oregon to New York, it was down to maybe half a dozen people who more or less ran a commune together, a, a sort of a cooperative apartment, so that it was more a housing arrangement than a society. Did you have any idea, was there any inkling in your mind whatsoever that 30-odd years later, the Futurians, who were the up-and-coming youngsters of the field, would wind up being the old establishment? I didn't really think that it would ever happen, that we would get to be the establishment instead of being the people who were trying to shake it down. I suppose that if I'd thought a little bit in historical terms, I would have seen that it was inevitable. From outside, the establishment always looks impregnable and eternal. I mean, I thought John Campbell would edit Astounding until the year 2600, and I didn't think that anybody would replace Captain S.P. Meek as uh, one of the leader, leading writers of science fiction. But we sure were trying. I mean, everybody in the Futurians was trying hard to write uh, assiduously. We weren't uh, idle butterflies at any time. There was a lot of typing going on in the ivory tower day and night. You gloss over the great Futurian lawsuits. Were you in any way involved? The lawsuits were long past my time. I think they were, in fact, after World War II. I wasn't even really aware that there was a Futurian society still in existence after the war until people began talking about it in the historical past. Yeah, Judith Merrill was still a part of it then, but it wasn't she? Judy Merrill became a part of it during the war, toward the end of the war, I believe, uh, at a time when I was no longer connected with it. I met Judy for the first time, I think, in 1946 or so, at a party. And I think that's when I discovered that there still was something that called itself the Futurians. I've always considered that incarnation a sort of zombie, you know, reincarnated and walking and shambling around, but without the soul that made the original Futurians. Do you think it was easier to break into the science fiction field in the 30s rather than the 70s? I think it was easier to break into the field for someone who had relatively little sophistication about writing and publishing in the 30s, because there only were magazines 
and you can copy the address out of the table of contents and mail the story off, and most everybody can figure out that that's something to do. I think now it's harder because uh, so much of the publishing is in the form of books. Even the short stories often appear as original anthologies, and it requires more more knowledge of what's happening to be able to track down an anthology to send a story to. But science fiction has always been extraordinarily hospitable to new writers uh, in the 30s and the 40s and the 50s and the 60s and the 70s, and I guess it will go on being that way. Did your class background ever cause you any problems with the science fiction world? My class background? I don't know what my class background was. My parents both came of poor families. My uh, father's father was a carpenter, and my mother's father was a sort of, I guess he was a sort of farmer. By the time I knew him, he was nothing. He was an old man who was living on the charity of his kids. My father was a plunger who often was rich and often was bankrupt, and I'm not sure where in the class structure my family existed. I never was aware of having a class. It was something that I laid on myself when I was in the Marxist area, try to find a class for myself to be in, and I thought of myself as a worker, but I really knew damn well that I'd never done an honest day's uh, industrial labor in my life and probably never would, which was true of everybody else I knew in the Marxist movement. At one point in your autobiography, you mentioned that if you didn't become a science fiction writer, you would probably have become a teacher of some sort. I think I might have become a teacher. I thought briefly of becoming a uh, Presbyterian minister when I was about 14 a fit which passed by the time I was about 14 and a quarter. Uh, but that was, had occurred to me. I think most writers have a sort of messianic attitude. They want to preach. They want to say what they think is the reality of the world, which is true of teachers and ministers and priests and politicians. I would have been in there somewhere, I think. You also mentioned in, in your book that in your first meeting with the Young Communist League? Young Communist YCL, yeah. Most of the people who whose intellects you respected in both that organization and in the science fiction world were Jewish people. Yeah, I think that I formed the opinion that the smartest and most educated people I knew were by and large Jewish. And possibly it was because I lived in Brooklyn, often in Jewish neighborhoods, so that a lot of people I went to school with were. I was usually the only Presbyterian on the block, whatever block I was on. But also because I think that it's a matter of historical fact that the Jewish tradition is literary and educative tradition. That the people of the book refer to themselves as the people of the book. And a heritage not shared by my own Irish and German ancestors who didn't care about books. I remember as a nine-year-old being very envious of my two closest friends at that time, neighbors on the same block I lived on. One was Catholic and one was Jewish. And uh, they had all the breaks, and Presbyterians had very little. Catholics had uh, somebody to take their sins away from them. And the Jews had uh, what seemed to be a more relaxed and amiable community. And all Presbyterians had was a sense of imminent damnation. Well, I think that accounts for a lot of the facts about being a wasp, the fact that you're taught that there's probably no hope. In the book, you talk about your political activities circa 1939, 40, 41. 
getting into and back out of uh, the Young Communist League. Way before that, Dick. I was into the Young Communist League in 36 and out of it. I can tell you exactly when I was out of it once and for all, although I'd stopped being very active before that. But the last moment when I conceived it as possible for me to be involved with them at all was the day after the fall of Paris in the spring of 1940. Then, as I mentioned in the book, uh, a friend of mine offered to drink a toast to the liberation of Paris by the freedom-loving forces of the People's Republic of Nazi Germany. I didn't want to play that game anymore. That was just more than I could handle. Uh, the coverage that David Knight in his book gave to the uh, the tragedy of Johnny Michel and the fact that you said relatively little about Michel. Now, I came on scene in the science fiction community too late ever to know him. He was a sort of legend. But he strikes me, from all that I've ever been able to learn from your book, from David's book, it seems to me that, that he may emerge as, uh, as, as very much of a legendary figure. Well, it was a deliberate attempt to make him a legendary figure uh, in the late 30s, I guess it was, around 38 or 39, 38, when uh, the political movement that we called Michelism arose. And we, were, we were trying to portray Johnny Michel as the Marx of America in the 20th century, Michel, the Michelist Manifesto and stuff like that. And that was sort of half tongue-in-cheek, but also half not. You know, half it was an attempt to uh, show a cohesive political philosophy that was sort of Marxist, sort of collectivist and socialist, but also future-oriented. And reading the sort of things that were published at that time now, they all look pretty bizarrely immature, but that wasn't our intention at the time. I said relatively little about Johnny Michel for several reasons. For one thing, the book covers a, a lot of time and a lot of place, and there's only one chapter really on the Futurians. But also because he was a tragedy. Johnny Michel was one of the brightest and most talented people I ever knew. And if I had been asked to uh, place betting odds on who was going to be remembered 50 years later in that group of people, he would have been one of the ones that I would have been quite sure would be memorable. And nothing came of it all. There's not a word of his that he wrote that's in print anymore. There's no effect visible of his presence except the memory of a few people who knew him at the time. And I've never been able to understand how in a group of a dozen people, all of whom look bright and intelligent and creative, one or two will stay with it and uh, achieve some sort of success, and a few others will dabble at it, and a few will just self-destruct just begun. And Johnny is not the only one. There are two or three others who were in the Futurians who I thought were immensely talented, who did nothing. Who were those, or would you prefer not to get into that? Well, I, I don't think it's fair to name names, but uh, they're people you never heard of. It astonishes me that you never heard of them, because they seem to have so much potential. Well, some of the old group photos, here are all of these familiar names. There's Walheim, there's James Blesh, and so on, and, and there's Chester Cohen. Chester's still alive and well in New York. Uh, I haven't seen him in some years, but he was quite a talented person in a lot of ways, but he wasn't one of the ones I was thinking of as obviously marked for some sort of success. He was a talented person who um, I thought would lead a pretty interesting life, so I didn't think that he'd be preeminent in the same way that I did some others, but like Johnny Michel. In the book, you 
You say a certain amount about some of the classic science fiction editors. I wonder if you would expand a little further, particularly, uh, I'm thinking about Campbell. There's been this edifice built around him, uh, almost deifying him. And then just in the past year or two, uh, we're starting to see a little bit of revisionist uh, comment about Campbell. A couple of others, uh, you, you do say a good deal about Horace Gold, and, uh, but I'd love to hear you say a little more, because he's my personal favorite. And uh, if you have any feelings about Boucher and McComas and their work. I was never closely connected with Boucher and McComas. I wrote a couple of stories for them, and I knew them both very well. And when I was an agent, I sold them a lot of material. But I never worked with them in the same way that I did with Horace Gold. And even with Campbell, I never bought anything. I kept trying. I thought at the time, and still think, that John Campbell was the best editor science fiction ever had, which is not to say that he didn't have some strange idiosyncrasies and peculiarity. But uh, when you think of what science fiction was before he took over Astounding, and what it became immediately thereafter. You have to perceive that something was happening that this wasn't chance, and what it was with John Campbell. He brought into the field half of the best-known writers around, Arthur Clarke, A.E. Van Vogt, Sprague de Camp, Ted Sturgeon, etc. The list goes on forever. And it wasn't because they were there waiting to be picked up. Many of them would not have been writing if they hadn't had the example of Astounding to set as a model. He worked very closely with a lot of them for years. I've always regarded it as one of his least attractive traits that he never bought any of my stories. In the whole 34 years he was editing Astounding and Analog, I must have submitted 25 stories to him, and except for two or three that I wrote in collaboration with somebody else, uh, he never bought one. I don't think because we were enemies, we were on pretty good personal terms. When I was an agent, I sold him more than everybody else combined did but he was sort of opaque to my charms. But he was nevertheless an editor I respected a lot, and I learned a lot from. He pioneered ways of editing magazines, ways of editing science fiction. The way he wrote his editorials impressed me. He talked them out with people, so that by the time he put them into type for the next issue, he'd heard every possible argument against them, and he could defend it. Horace Gold was the editor I worked with most closely, and the one I owe most to. Not that he was always right, he was often wrong, but in the conflict between Horace's hopelessly impractical demands for the way I should write a story and the way I perceived the story, there turned out to be a sort of synergistic or dynamic action of some sort that I think produced better work than would have happened if I had done what he wanted or if I had done what I wanted. I think that a writer needs to be able to bounce his stuff off somebody who's in a power position, who has to be listened to. Whether he can determine what's published or not, at least he should be somebody that you can't dismiss. Because I think that it's much easier to perceive the virtues and faults of a story when you hear it come back to you from outside. One of the things that I regret is that uh, I don't have that sort of editor. I haven't had that sort of editor since Horace retired, because it was, I don't know, probably conducive to heart attack from time to time. But I think Are the author's part of the editors? Both. <laughs> I think it was also conducive to, uh, many cases, better writing. I don't mean to say that the stories were necessarily better then than they are now, because the world has changed. 
but I think that I would not have been writing as well as I did in the 50s without Horace to uh, yell at me and try to trick me and cajole me and threaten me into doing what he wanted. God knows Horace was a determined editor. It's hard to say no to him. It was harder to say no to him than to write the story in the first place. Ted Sturgeon remarked about Horace that he, he could turn good stories into very good stories, and he could turn excellent stories into very good stories. <laughs> I don't agree with that. I think that what was true of Horace was that he could turn good stories into very good stories. When he came across an excellent story, he didn't know what to do with it. He had no reflexes programmed for that occasion. And I think that's why he rejected some of the best stories that were offered to him. Case of Conscience was offered to Horace, and he turned it down. Flowers for Algernon was offered to Horace, and he turned it down. He just didn't know how to handle them. But I think that when a lot of writers worked with Horace, their stories turned out better than they would have sent them to some other editor who might have published them in a good but not excellent way. You know, you know as well as I do what writers were uh, deeply involved with Horace at the time. The difficulty, of course, is that no writer ever wants to admit that an editor had anything to do with his success. When I was editing Galaxy, and it, it was a source of considerable pride to me that a lot of the stories I published won Hugo. I don't remember the number exactly, but I checked it up in volume two of the Hugo winners. And of the stories that had originally been published in science fiction magazines over the period I was editing, I think I had published nine and all the other magazines combined had published two, which I thought was pretty good. And when I went up to pick up a Hugo for an author who couldn't be there, I felt really personally proud. The other day, I got a Hugo for Gateway, and next day I saw Jim Bain in the corridor of the hotel, and he said, well, we did it again. And I said, who are you? <laughs> I just had not occurred to me, you know, that since he had been the first person to publish it as a serial, that he felt some proprietorship in it. From the other side of the desk, it looks all different. How do you feel about the awards you are, a Hugo or a Nebula or a, some of the other more off-the-wall things, Jupiter Awards, the Locus Award, sure, or any of the others? I don't really know what the validity of an award is. So much of it depends on this person's time to get an award. And there was a long period when you could measure the effect of things like being in the Milford Writers Conference or the willingness of a publisher to send out free copies and see that these were reflected pretty closely in particularly the Nebula Awards. I don't think it's quite as true anymore. I think that what I once called the Milford Mafia, dwindled in power and may not even exist anymore. It never was a conspiratorial group. It was just a bunch of people who knew each other and liked each other and voted for each other. Sounds like the Futurians. And a lot like the Futurians, except we weren't giving any awards. Didn't have anything to give them with. But I think that, by and large, it's a fair world. And if an author doesn't get an award he's entitled to, sooner or later he does get one he isn't entitled to. It's not fair in the sense that there's a point-for-point -point correspondence between virtue and achievement, but it balances out over a period of time. At least I think so. There are stories of mine that I know in my heart should have had something and didn't. And there's a story of mine called Day Million, which I think is the best short story I ever wrote, which was never even nominated for anything. At a time when all it took to nominate for the Nebula was one person. Didn't even get that one person. And I thought that was unfair at the time.
but uh, I've had other awards that I didn't feel were wholly due to me. I won't tell you what they were. <laughs> Not Gateway, though. Gateway, I'm, I'm pleased with. I like the book, and I'm delighted that it uh, won the Locust Bowl. Not to mention the Hugo and the Nebula and the Campbell Award, and I understand it's up for the Apollo Prize in France, too. But I think it blew the Jupiter Award. Who won it? Heritage of Stars by Cliff Stemmett. You recently resigned as editor of Bantam? I have given up editing permanently. I've turned down three offers since then, one of them with great pain, because I really wanted to do it. So I have turned it down. Editing isn't as much fun as it used to be, or at least not for me. It's a big business. In order to be uh, any good at all as an editor in a large publishing house, you've got to interface with 40 other people. And it takes a lot of skill and a lot of attention and a lot of time that I didn't want to give it. Besides which, it's not as much fun as uh, being in a one-man shop, one-person shop. All the time I was editing Galaxy, I had at most one helper, sometimes a secretary, sometimes an assistant, never both, and often neither. And it was a lot of work, but uh, I felt that it was my own product. You don't mention that you saw sort of Shannara. What you mention is something to the effect of that the Delrays had sort of Shannara, had a sort of Shannara. What I said was that Delray, that Valentine under Judy Lynn Delray, two bestsellers at a time, Star Wars and the sort of Shannara. And that's perfectly true. And I felt that Judy Lynn was doing a superlative job for Valentine in terms of getting them books that were going to sell a lot of copies, make a lot of money. But I didn't really regret not having published Star Wars. Now, that's not quite true. I regretted not having published it because it sold so well. But if it came to me again in the form that I saw it, as a sort of sketchy plot outline of what it was going to be about, I would reject it again, because the plot outline isn't any good. It's derivative and sort of silly. In the development in the film, it was a lot better. But Star Wars, I did have a sort of a shot at, and I declined. Had sort of Shannara come to you, would you have published it? No, I don't know anything about fantasy. Is there any book of quality that came to you during your period of Bantam that you now regret not having published? I don't think so. Uh, the ones that I really like, I bought, and they're in print or they're, out, they're coming out. Uh, there's a long delay between signing a contract and the book coming out, so three or four of the books that I like best have not yet been published. I don't think I regret any of the ones I turned down. I do feel as if I have egg on my face about not having pursued and secured Star Wars simply because of the fact that it's a publishing phenomenon. But in terms of uh, its contribution to the state of the art, I don't think there is any. I don't think that the novel version would have sold 50,000 copies if the film had not reached 12 zillion viewers. What book or story is this editor at Galaxy Phantom uh, are you most proud of having taken a chance on? Dahlgren. Dahlgren was turned down by, uh, I think, 12 different publishers in New York before I published it. I regarded it as a test of courage, sort of a maturation rite like circumcision or being hung out on the mountain all night long with by my thumbs because I didn't really think that it was going to be a great success financially. I thought that it was a book that deserved to be published and could not be edited because the author had spent so much time working on it and just would not allow it to be edited. And it had to be published as it was or not at all. And I have an immense respect for Samuel R. Delaney, one of the most 
rewarding writers I know. So I published it, took my courage in my hands and published it. And it was a great pleasure to see it go into 10 or 12 printings pretty quickly. I hadn't really anticipated that. I thought it might become an underground bestseller, as was true, for example, of uh, the early novels by Joanna Russ and Ursula Le Guin and a few others. It didn't really do much first time out, but then picked up an audience later on. And to have it take off from the very first was one of the few unexpected joys of being an editor. Did you have any particular comments from higher-ups at Bantam before you published Dogman? Yeah, I had comments from people who said things like, well, it's your decision. It was a big, fat book and did not have an established audience. And there was a great deal of concern about being able to sell it at all at the price that we had to put on it. But Bantam gave me a free hand. Phantom never denied me the right to buy anything I wanted to buy. I didn't have to consult with anybody. I just wrote a contract. I have no complaints about any sort of interference. No one suggested that I shouldn't have bought it. No one suggested that I was losing my marbles. Only uh, that they hoped my judgment was what it was supposed to be. (laughs) As I was not real sure at that point of myself, uh, I sort of dodged a question when I could. Afterwards, they said, aha. Wunderkind that uh, worked out very well. It strengthened the whole Bantam line, as a matter of fact, because I had made a point of saying how I thought the novel should be merchandised and so on, and they did what I said, and it worked out just as I had hoped. Not expected, but hoped. A couple of questions about modern science fiction. Do you see any kind of decline in science fiction writing as a whole? I don't think science fiction writing has declined in quality. If anything, I think it's got a lot better probably due to the last ripples of a new wave, which doesn't really exist as a phenomenon anymore, has left its imprint on even the old dinosaurs like me and Isaac Asimov and a few others who are writing in a much more uh, relaxed and experimental way than 10 or 20 years ago. I think the quality of writing in science fiction is rather astonishingly high, and the reason I think that Today, when I might not have thought it two months ago, is that within the past few weeks I've had occasion to read five big recent novels out of the science fiction field, including three by writers whom I respect a lot. And I'm really tired of the story of the young poor boy from an urban ghetto or a New Orleans farm or a Louisiana farm community who... Uh, decides to get educated and he goes to college and becomes a teacher of English lit and his marriages break up and he has four or five unsatisfactory affairs and he looks back on it all at the age of 50 and says, gee, that's a terrible waste of time. And I've read that book so many times, twice within the last few months, that I wonder why anybody bothers to write it anymore. And science fiction it doesn't do that. Science fiction at its best, uh, has a lot more to say than the contemporary novel does, in my view. Of course, at its worst, it has less to say than anything. That's Sturgeon's Law, and 90% of everything is not worth fooling with. What about the short story form? Short story form has been damaged in science fiction by the vicissitudes of the market. There have been comparatively few markets for short stories. 
which is a pity because I think that some of the best science fiction is short stories. And I thought for years that the ideal form for a science fiction story was a novella, 20 or 30,000 words long, which gives you enough scope to develop an idea, but you don't have to pat it. But uh, that's pretty nearly vanished. And maybe, maybe it's not written in words of gold somewhere that it has to be that way. Maybe it's just that the structure of the magazines was such that that's what encouraged so much of the best writing 20 or 30 years ago, because there are a lot of good new novels that I'm greatly impressed with, such as almost everything Ursula Le Guin writes, and a good many others, some new writers like John Barley, who I think is going to go a long way. I think Barley has some difficulties that he's going to overcome. There are some things that I don't like about his novels, which I don't find in his short stories, but I think that he's certainly, for a first novel, that the Ophiuchus hotline is a tremendous accomplishment, and I'm looking forward to the ones after that. And then there are people like Tim Hogan, who's hardly ever heard of. He's published two books, and I think he's going to go a long way. Is the science fiction boom right now in publishing novels, correct? I'm not sure there's a boom in publishing novels. I think the uh, growth in the publishing part of science fiction has been pretty steady and consistent over a long period of time. There's certainly a boom in public attention, coming partly from Star Wars and Close Encounters of the Third Kind and everything else. I don't really think it affects the central core of science fiction very much. I don't think it affects what people like Bob Heinlein or Arthur Clarke or John Barley or Ursula Le Guin or any of the others we've mentioned, right? I think that it's the sort of thing that gets you on the cover of Newsweek, where I saw Isaac Asimov's name last week as an example of what was being published. But I don't think that it makes much difference in that nuclear family of maybe two million people in America who read science fiction and know that they're reading science fiction, because what they want is not the stuff that appears on the cover of Newsweek. But does it make a dif- doesn't it make a difference in terms of income? It makes a difference in terms of the money that Hollywood throws to writers, yeah. More money floating around for options and purchases and commitments. But that kind of money doesn't do you any good. It corrupts your soul, damages your liver. I've done very little of it. I don't like the idea of writing directly for film or television. I have written two treatments for television series, which, if they go on the air, will make me inordinately rich. But I'm not holding my breath, and I don't think I'll do any more. Not unless I can find some eccentric television producer who's willing to take a chance on not getting on the networks, because I don't want to do what the networks want you to do. What the networks want you to do is write a series character, another Star Trek or something like that with the same ears coming back every week. And that seems to me to destroy one of the essential strengths of science fiction, which is its variety. What I like is the notion of an anthology series. Nobody in network television will consider that now. Do you ever have a hard time communicating to younger fans the kind of science fiction that you were exposed to when you were younger. I know in Way the Future Was you mentioned Stanley Coblins, and Coblins unfortunately has absolutely nothing in print right now. I don't know if there are very many fans who don't know what kind of writing I was exposed to, because a lot of it's still in print. The Doc Smith stuff stays in print forever. Edgar Rice Burroughs stays in print forever. Some of the stuff is missing, and I wish it weren't. Stanton and Koblenz, for example, he's still alive and still writing. 
and it's just not heard of because his books are out of print. It's probably a little confusing to someone coming into science fiction right now to see on the same bookcase the Skylark of Space and Dahlgren and the Time Machine and the Dispossessed and try to place them in some sort of pattern because they look as if they all happen at once. They're all printed last week and it's not immediately apparent that they were written many years apart. But I don't know if that's really important. I think that science fiction is such a broad and diverse universe to operate in that nobody really loves all of it at once. And I think most readers will search around to find the kinds they want and read them and maybe experiment with a few others from time to time. And the ones who don't know the chronology and patterns of evolution in science fiction probably really don't care that much. Do you have any novels that are going to be coming out next year? I have a novel called Gem, spelled J-E-M, which St. Martin's is going to publish along about April, I think, of next year, maybe March. Matter of fact, the manuscript in the other room because I just got back the copy-edited manuscript and I went over the queries, which pleased me a lot to care about putting this into permanent form. But in the copy-edited manuscript for Gem, the manuscript runs about 450 pages, and there were probably about 460 queries. The copy-editor was very conscientious. And along about page 440, there's a female character in it who is portrayed as sort of a mean person in many ways. And she dies a horrible death, and there was a query slip attached to that page, but it wasn't a query. It was a copy-editor saying, it was too good for her. And that tickled me. I was really pleased to see that the that she'd involved herself in the story to that extent. And after that comes out, there's another one which is about half done in sort of preliminary form, which Valentine Del Rey will probably publish in the beginning of 1980. And I have contracts for uh, four other books which are in less uh, advanced stages, even less advanced stages than those. Well, hopefully we'll see more of the Gucci. Yeah, that's one of the contracts. Tentative working title for that book is Beyond the Blue Event Horizon, which was also the tentative working title for Gateway. <laughs> it's the sort of title I come back to. I doubt that it will stay on the book. But I don't know what the title will be. I haven't written enough of it to know. Fred Pohl's success continued for many years after this interview. Jem, published in 1979, won the National Book Award the only year there was an award for science fiction. The sequel to Gateway, Beyond the Blue Event Horizon, was a finalist for both the Hugo and Nebula Awards in 1980. In all, there eventually were seven novels in the Gateway series, and after 1979, all told, he wrote 17 more novels, the last being The Lives He Led, published in 2011, there were also several collections, even more collaborations, and some nonfiction as well. At the time of his death at 93 in 2013, he was working on a second memoir, which to date has not been published. This interview with Frederick Paul was conducted in October 1978 in Santa Rosa, California. The recording was digitized, remastered, and edited in February 2021. My co-hosts were Richard A. Lupoff and Lawrence Davidson. Feedback on this and other Radio Walensky podcasts is appreciated. You can write to bookwaves at hotmail.com 
and feel free to search out other interviews at bookwaves.com or on the kpfa.org website. Until next time, I'm Richard Walensky on the Area 941 Radio Walensky Podcast.